Welcome back to Gatamai. We have visitors tonight, as you know, but we also have a new visitor. She's going to listen intently, and hopefully she'll abide by the house rules of no unnecessary noise during unnecessary times. So, Riley, you, you, you note that as rule number 16. All right. Before we get our study tonight, um, looking at true spirituality, let's take a, about 30 seconds or so for a rebound if necessary and identifying if you're in fellowship, if there's known sin in your life or an attitude that has taken you outside of fellowship with God that you need to deal with. Um, use the priesthood that you've received through Jesus Christ to, to deal, with, deal with that so that you can understand His Word and, and switch from carnality to spirituality in operation. And if that's the way you are right now, that's great. Give us about 30 seconds or so, I'll open with prayer, and we'll get going. Heavenly Father, I thank you that we can refer ourselves back to you as the God of the universe and the supreme authority over all things. May that be the place we find ourselves being submitted to you under your control, recognizing you to be God and the God and Lord of our life and our thoughts and our actions during this moment as we study your word. Thank you for truth and for the message of truth which you brought forth and through which we have a understood our need for salvation, and hopefully have acted upon that through faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior. Please bless the study and guide us tonight. May we understand your word and be willing to apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're still looking at faith in action. That pretty much will sum up the rest of the first chapter of James. I understand that that is one of the evidences that James talks about when he's trying to identify what true spirituality looks like and how it operates. Faith is from that Greek word pisteo which means to place a dependency upon, and it references a complete dependency. You either have faith, you're completely dependent, or you do not have faith, you're not completely dependent. Um, there's no real degree to it, you either do or you don't, depending on what your variable is that you're depending upon. Last week we introduced this, or this term called grace provision. Um, it refers to anything which has been given by God to humanity or believers for the purpose of accomplishing His will toward either party. And we've been given resources, money, shelter, food, clothing, jobs, um, the Word of God, anything that God has provided for us fits into this grace provision concept. Uh, we'll use that term off and on through, throughout the rest of the study of James. I don't think we used it that much last week, but uh, I wanted to introduce it so that if I slip it in there, you guys understand what I'm referring to. So, again, grace provision is anything that has been given by God to humanity or believers for the purpose of accomplishing His will toward either party. That could be his will toward the individual in that moment, or his will, or providing something for the individual to accomplish his will in that moment. So either for the individual or for the individual's work. <clears throat> Last week we looked at the first part of James 1.18, and the expanded translation of the first three words of James 1.18 reads as follows. Having already been acted upon to thoughtfully consider a plan and carry it out through volition, he gave birth to us. This verse teaches that God considered a plan, carried it out, and that upon its completion, He gave birth to those Jews who believed. Their belief in His plan is critical to their rebirth. That term rebirth pops in and out of the study. I tried to edit it out. Change that out for spiritual birth. Uh, their belief in His plan is critical to their spiritual birth. It's rebirth because the human humanity originally had that spirit, but technically we're not reborn, we're born again. Uh, so it's, it's a little different semantic, but... Just change that out for spiritual spiritual birth, if you will. We learned last week that once God's plan was completed, the diaspora was given spiritual birth and thus eternal life by placing dependency upon God's plan. This identification is twofold. One, that God's plan was carried out prior to the diaspora's spiritual rebirth. We saw that through the use of the aorist participle, uh, which identified that the plan was carried out prior to the birth of uh, the diaspora. And number two, God's plan was carried out prior to the diaspora's eternal life. Spiritual rebirth 
is the necessary requirement for eternal life. They occur at the same time. Uh, spiritual rebirth is what allows you into eternal life, in, in essence. Um, so they're not the same thing, spiritual rebirth and eternal life, but they go hand in hand most of the time. The following principles are then established from our glance into verse 18. Question? Why most of the time? Uh, why most of the time for spiritual rebirth and eternal life going hand in hand? Right. Because if, you're, if you have spiritual rebirth, you have eternal life. If you have eternal life, spiritual birth is there. You don't have one without the other, but they're not the same thing. So most things go hand in hand, but they go all the time. hand all the time. Yes. Not sure. Not, <laughs> not most of the time, all the time. Okay. Thank you. Got it. Excuse my... Genericism. I was trying to think Ooh, there's a new word. When, when you have spiritual rebirth, it's not yeah. working yeah. at all. Yeah, you, they go hand in hand. They're not the same thing. They're not linked, really, but they to have one, you have the other. So I guess in that sense, they're linked. They're but, perfectly correlated. Right. How it's, are they not linked? In the sense that spiritual birth may be the focus of a passage rather than eternal life. But in the same way that the Holy Spirit communicates to the human spirit, uh, you have to have both there. They're linked in that sense. Does that make sense? It's a baby. <laughs> Are you distracting Riley from her study tonight? She's happy. She's learning. So the, they're linked, but it may not be the focus. Both of them may not be the focus of the passage. It may be background, like looking at the same calling and two sides of it. You may look at spiritual life one side, the other side is that eternal life has to be there because spiritual life exists. Okay. But you may be focusing spirit, clearly on spiritual life. So in that sense, they're connected to the hip, but you may not be looking at that hip. You're looking at the other hip. Yeah, you're looking at the other hip. <laughs> but why are you looking at the hips? Because you're a hipster. <laughs> All right, so back to the coins. <laughs> It would be at that point that we would identify that both of those things are feminine nouns, and so you're looking at feminine hips of the same thing, but whatever. Anyway, <laughs> so with the principles from verse 18 established, that spiritual rebirth occurred after the carrying out and thought process of God's plan, uh, and the eternal life thus the same, we want to look at the next part of James 1.18 to identify what it was that was the instrument that God used in order to bring about that spiritual rebirth, that eternal life. So James 1.18 deals with that. And in it, James identifies the tool God used to educate the diaspora regarding his predetermined plan for humanity's spiritual rebirth. Let's take a look at the verse. The entire verse of James 1.18 says, In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of firstfruits among his creatures. Last session, we studied the in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth part. Tonight, we will get through the by the word of truth part, so long as we don't jump on too many rabbit trails. The remaining part of the verse will be for future study. Having previously studied the first part of James 1.18, the second construct is in need of study in order to completely understand the concept being portrayed by James. This second part is actually the completion of James's first thought, which is more highly emphasized by James as a result of its prominent position in the verse. The in the exercise of his will he brought us forth part is the point. It's in the exercise of God's will. It's by God's will that he brought us forth. He gave birth to us. That word brought us forth means gave birth to. But the, that's not the complete statement that James makes. That alone is an independent statement. It could be its own statement. But he carries on and adds the indirect object in there, which comes from by the word of truth. So we want to look at that as an entirety. So last week we had that complete statement. We're going to look at the finality of that statement or the completion of it. Make sense? You get what I'm saying? This is part two of the first part. Alright. Yeah, part 1B. And so it's James 118B. Last week we discovered that James 118 reads a, a little more literally, having already been acted upon to thoughtfully consider a plan and carry it out through volition, he gave birth to us. This statement is able to stand on its own. However, discourse analysis identifies that James completes this statement by adding a specifying qualifier to its end. In other words, by looking at what James wrote, we know that there's more to it than just that. Question. So having been, and I really am okay. having already been acted upon, who's acting upon him? The need for the plan was what acted upon God to create the plan. Okay. Now keep in mind, and this is something we had to, right. yeah, 
This is something we had to figure out last week, is how can an omniscient God make plans? He already knows it all. It's an anthropopathism, something that is designed for us to understand what he's doing in a human term. I was just because it's and God's sovereign, so who can act upon him? It's the necessity arose for a plan, and so he was acted upon to create a plan. That's how we rectified that. So this night, tonight we're looking at the addition that kind of finalizes that statement, um, because James 1.18 can't stand by itself as a true, valid, and complete statement, but James goes a step further in adding in an indirect object which reveals the what and how about God rebirthing humanity and specifically in the passage in context, we're talking about the diaspora, the believing Jews. Um, you can change out the diaspora anywhere here for believer. It's The principle applies strictly clearly through here, but specifically we're looking at the diaspora. So we'll interchange both. Don't So if you get confused by that, really it's the same thing ultimately. James is talking specifically to the diaspora. We're applying it to us as believers and to all believers, whether in the diaspora or prior to Christ or post-Christ. So, the indirect object that reveals the what and how about God rebirthing humanity is identified by the English translation, by the word of truth. It comes from the phrase, laga aletheias. This phrase is translated from two Greek nouns. The additional words expressed in the English translation are established from the morphology of each of the words and are implied from their grammar rather than literally expressed through James writing each of them. So, James didn't write hupo. Ha, loga. He wrote laga. The by the part of by the word comes from the makeup of the letters that, that laga is written with. That omega on the end of there, um, giving the implication or implying the by the part of that. The same with of in of truth. There's the preposition of is not actually used there. Um, ek is not actually used there. So you are actually looking at an implication through the grammar that is being put out there. And in English, we smoothed it out, the translator smoothed it out, by putting by the word of truth there. It carries the idea across, and just pointing out that it's not word for word in the, the language. And we'll, we'll explain a lot of that, too. So I'm not saying it's if they did anything wrong. I'm just saying, bring it to your attention. Those words are not in the original language. It's literally laga alathias. Okay, the first being translated by the word is from the Koine Greek word laga, or lago, excuse me, I've been mispronouncing that one. Lago is the more generic of the two main words used to mean word. This is where we get a little bit tricky and I'll try to slow down. We're dealing with a word that literally means word. So I'll say this word means word. Okay, so it's just hanging there. The two options available, however, that can be translated into the English word word. Uh, available in Koine Greek have different focuses in view. In so much as this is the case, a proper understanding of each allows for a better grasp of both in light of the other. In other words, if we know what both are, we can look at them and identify why one was better than the other. Question? Okay. Here are your two words for word in Koine Greek. Logos and rhema. Logos refers to a generic revelation, the overall message, whether large or small, long or short. Um, when you talk about the pastor bringing the message, that's logos. It's the overall. It's not so much the sentences and the words that he said, but the overall meaning of what he said. And it could be a paragraph of meaning, a sentence of meaning, or a discourse of meaning, an entire three-hour lecture of meaning. But the emphasis there is on the ultimate message, the overall message, rather than the individual words spoken. Um, so this is known as the revealed word in the generic sense of a message being portrayed. Uh, the Bible is God's Logos to us. It is the revealed word to us. Within the Bible, there is the rhema. Rhema is the specific words revealed. In other words, the zoomed in detailed definition of each word within the overall message, like taking a magnifying glass and putting it over a sentence, which is typically what we do here. We look at the technical aspects of the words of the original language. Doing so places emphasis on the individual aspects and definitions of a word or words within a larger message. So, message, think logos, individual word. Think Rama. Um, Jesus said that man does not live on word on bread alone, but by the very word of God, he used Rama. We are to live upon the very individual aspects of each word that God produces, not the overall love your neighbor as yourself word. That's a part of the individual Rama and a part of the overall message, but um, 
It's every individual aspect, which means that we need to understand what his word says in that kind of a capacity. So in this passage, in verse 18, logos is the root word from which logo is derived. We don't have rhema in view. So we're looking at the general message here rather than a specific detailed command or, or sentence. Can I ask a question? You can ask me a question. So I've heard it pronounced logos and logos. Is it, are they all okay? There are two. Yes, they're all okay. One is better than the other, in my opinion, because it differentiates between logos and logo. In other words, the, uh, it says the English O-looking one uh-huh. is that aw sound. We go back to, um, to logo, it's an omicron. And then the W-looking one provides an O. That's the Erasmian pronunciation. It's the academic one. In the ac- academic world, you'll usually get that kind of thing taught to you uh-huh. uh, because it differentiates. And so when you're teaching it, it's easier to say, no, you mispronounced that or you spelled that wrong in your... Uh, verbal response because you don't have to worry about, well, is it ah, ah. So in the modern pronunciation, which is where everything is going, and I think it's a sad thing for Koine Greek because it's going to ambiguify it a little little bit. A little little bit. (laughs) Ambiguify, is that a word? Sure, I'll take it. So in the modern Greek, logo would be loga or logo or loga, loga. I mean, it's just (laughs) the... The, um, the Omicron, or Omicron the and the Omega, the O and the W, right. would have either the A or O sound. They could be either one, both and. Yeah. So it just makes it a little more difficult to differentiate. Um, Logos Bible software Logos. calls it Logos. But that's only the modern scholars. In fact, the, the, the father and the son uh, that owned the company and, and started it, they both pronounce it differently. One's Logos and one's Logos. So, yeah. So it depends on it depends on whether the, the person is speaking on a modern Greek pronunciation or uh, Erasmian. Erasmian was a uh, was a guy named Erasmus who came up with the switch between the two, so he could differentiate. Because um, when you're reading it and a scribe, if you're being read it, how do you differentiate between the two letters? And with the W looking one on the end of logo, the uh, omega, if that's off also, you're writing down a word trying to copy down a text, and now you don't know if that ending is going to be dative or if it's going to be uh, uh, genitive because it changes in the form. So it's to me, it's better for the, to use the Erasmian just because it differentiates. Realistically, the we don't really know how it was originally pronounced, so there's not one that's like Erasmian's the best over the other one. So they, they do, I, I prefer the Erasmian, that's what I learned too, but I prefer it because it differentiates yeah. between it. So. Yeah. Right. Pretty much every other Greek letter I've used in math and engineering, but not Omicron, because <laughs> it looks like a yeah, so not, it's not a stupid question. It's a great question, actually, because... Serious, because my, like, in my head, it was like... Yeah, every time you say it, it I'm like... Just because we've heard yeah. it. Like, well, and it, it, it begs the question of credibility in some arenas, too. I mean, you get to that point where it's like, well, he's calling this, and this guy calls this, and I trust this guy better than this, and it's like, well, <laughs> well who do you trust? I can never... Because the school called Bogus, I can never... Like, I heard different people saying it. Right. Yeah, it just depends on whether they're using a modern pronunciation or Erasmian. I use Erasmian for that reason. It separates the two. Um, I also got caught in it, which is not something that typically happens for the those two. I'm pretty alert to the Omicron and Omega. But. So Lago, or Laga, or Logo, or Loga, depending on how you want to use that. We're going to go with Erasmian just because it's better that way. YOLO? What? All right, let's move on. Good question, though. So, logos is the overall message. Rhema are the specific words, the individual characteristics, attributes that make up those words, syntax, grammar, all that stuff. James uses logo to express the overall revealed message expressed in communication by God. Its focus is on the overall message rather than the detailed examination of each of the words within the message communicated. As such, James is referencing an overarching concept as opposed to a specific command or aspect of the larger message. So we're not looking at something specific. We're looking at the abstract overall message, zoomed out, if you will. 
Logos in the sense of the revealed word or revealed message is used by James in the dative case in verse 18. This marks logo as the indirect object which is used to affect the direct object. Its effect upon the direct object is through the expressed action. We have a diagram. Okay, so don't get scared about that. We've got color coding and everything. All right, so here's here's our two here's our passages that we studied last week and this week. Uh, in the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by the word of truth. Note the different colors. We identified last week that in the exercise of His will comes from volumini, which is the aorist participle. He brought us. He brought forth is the main verb, and it's tiktai, means to give birth to. Then us. Smashed in between, he brought forth is the direct object because of the accusative case. We're pretty clear on that one. It's you can't really beat it. And then we are adding tonight the indirect object with by the word of, and then of truth modifies the indirect object. So these are the different parts of the sentence we're looking at. We're going to ignore the aorist participle tonight for the most part, um, other than what we've already studied. I will remind you though that the aorist participle, being aorist, identifies that it has to that the exercise of his will. The carrying out of the plan that he thought of and put into action volitionally um, has to be finished before the main verb it occurs. So aorist participle comes before the main verb, grammatically speaking. So the plan was thought of and implemented before the giving birth was. Alright, so the syntactical analysis of our little part here. He brought, a, he brought forth the main verb. We want to look at that main action of the sentence as being gave birth to. Now, who is receiving the action is our direct object. The recipient of the action is us. So he gave birth to us. Us is receiving the action and being given birth to. And then we add in tonight the object used to accomplish the action or the indirect object by the word. Um, so it's God giving birth to the diaspora by or through the means of the, of the word. Does that make sense? Hopefully it's pretty step-by-step -step on that one. Do it again, because I know Jamin likes animation. <laughs> and it's systematic. All right. So as we look at these different parts of the the syntax, we'll see how they interact with each other. Um, but if you can hold on to this concept for now and start correlating what we're talking about with logo or logo alathias, um, they will help us understand how. They, they're working together to accomplish the giving birth. Logo as the indirect object is the object which the subject, God, uses to carry out its action upon the direct object. In Koine Greek, the dative case carries with it three major ideas. While each of these ideas is expressed simultaneously, one is more dominant than the other two, being more highly emphasized. Now we get into fun stuff. The Koine Greek and the dative case. This is free extra, no charge on this one. To say the dative case is used in three ways is really a misnomer. In actuality, the dative case is the combination of two other cases formally taught and studied relative to Koine Greek, the instrumental and the locative. Each of these three cases, the dative included as its own, was a part of a larger case system which is rapidly, rapidly vanishing from the study and teaching of Koine Greek in seminaries and Bible colleges around the globe. There used to be what was known as an eight-case system and now they've combined it into a five case system. We'll explain that here. And I know you're all so eager to learn that yourself tonight. <laughs> this vanishing and combining act is the result of a decay of Koine Greek within the scholastic and academic world who are attempting to bridge the gap between academia and the public world. However, by attempting to simplify the most specific language in the world's history, scholars who choose to combine cases within other cases for the sake of easing the public's learning process fail to express the specificity of the language in its original design. Having done so, they encourage plurality within linguistic education, further complicating and blurring the lines of Koine Greek. They are ambiguifying the language. And in fact, I would go. I would go so far as to no. I'm creating words that should be there because of Koine Greek. Ambiguifying should totally be there. They're making it more ambiguous, for the sake of the English student in the house. Um. So. What ultimately is happening is they're trying to make it easier to teach and understand for beginners, but in doing so, they're actually making it more difficult when the beginner gets to intermediate or advanced, and then it's just causing trouble. And I, I actually kind of think it's part of Satan Cummings' attack upon the language itself. Is it creates that plurality and that chaos within the language structure that tends to break it down. 
But that's my personal opinion. You don't have to hold that view yourself. Up until modern times, and let me clarify modern meaning 1700s or so, Koine Greek was taught under an 8K system, which included the original separate identification of eight specific cases. Uh, about the 1700s, that's when the 5K system was kind of introduced. Um, it never really flourished. Huh? I'm not going there. But it never really flourished or developed that well. Um, it started to take hold later in the 18th or in the 1800s, um, towards the turn of the 1900s. That one, that's when it started becoming taught in some of the secular mainstream seminaries, secular seminary, go for that one, huh? Um, but now it's pretty much the standard is a 5K system. You don't usually get an 8K system out there. If you are if you go to a school that does that, applaud them because, frankly, it's the better one to do, in my opinion. You can choose otherwise. But let's explain what happened here. Originally, the 8 cases were nominative, vocative, accusative, genitive, ablative, dative, locative, and instrumental. Did I say vocative, locative? I thought I did. Vocative, accusative, genitive, ablative, dative, locative, instrumental. Okay, read the slide. That has the answers. Sorry, can I ask another question? Yeah. Why is it vocative instead of vocative and locative instead of locative? If you say location, you say vocation in English, so why wouldn't you vocative and locative? Sorry, I know it's a dumb question, but... It's okay. I understand. It seems like it should be located and vocative. The English is so predictable and unspecific, it seems like. We've had a discussion about pronunciation in homeschoolers before. <laughs> yeah, and I'm pulling that card. No, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> no, it, uh, it's my understanding <laughs> that, that the, yeah, exactly. the public schools. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just accusative and locative and evocative. It's just, it's just the, the way it is. Yeah, it's just the way it is. Um, there, there are other people that will call it vocative, but it, they're the minority on it. So it's just, sorry. No, no, it's fine. That, I don't really have a better answer than, than that, really. If so, it was, if it was, yeah, predominantly. Pick the one half dozen or other, or if it was. I think it's more like 90 10, maybe 85 15. But <laughs> either way. Your sister's asking me to move on now. It's a good question, though. I was afraid I second it. No, good good I question, bad answer. Could be 86, 14, we don't really know. Anyway, so that 8K system has been largely replaced for the simplified, in quotes, teaching of Quentin Greek under a less academic approach for a 5K system with the following cases nominative, accusative, genitive, dative, vocative. So you notice they've lost three of them right there. Obviously, 8 and 5 are not equivalents, so we noticed that. The switch was easy to make, though, <laughs> even though you all are homeschooled. <laughs> because the case endings, the end spelling of the Greek words relative to case expression, in other words, the last few letters of the word changed the case, um, they have, there are five case ending forms rather than eight. Actually, the argument really is that there's four, but we're going to go with five just for the sake of this argument. This allowed the grouping of eight original cases, which had five case endings, into a new group of five cases. So in other words, there's eight cases, but three of those have the same ending of the word, and context dictates which case it is. And then two others have the same ending uh, applied to them. So you can easily get rid of the eight cases because there's only five case endings. There's only five endings that identify the different cases. I have more information to help with that understanding. So the 5K system grouped the cases based upon case formation rather than case function. So rather than what the word does or the case does, they grouped it based on the word's ending. In doing so, it grouped together those which possess similar endings, combined them into the same case group. The change to the 5K system resulted in the following combinations. The eight cases listed on the left, the five case on the right. Number three, you'll note that the genitive and the ablative have been put together. Some pronounce it ablative. I don't know. Genitive and ablative have been grouped together because they have the same ending. So the word will be spelled the same, whether it's genitive or ablative in case. Again, context will dictate that. Same thing for the dative. The locative and instrumental were put into the dative category. So now in a five-case system, if the word is in the instrumental case, it will be called the dative case, and context will have to dictate that it's used dative of instrument or dative of means. Um, it is not native to the language. It's something that's been done 
and it really since the 1900s has even flourished a lot more. I mean, it kind of was slowing the uptake since the 1700s, but really it's just been boosted lately. So, um, this is the whole debate in Greek scholars. Do you go eight case or five case? The eight case ones are better in my opinion, but realistically, it's a difference not so much in the function of the word as it is the analysis of it. How do you identify it? You have to identify it by one of five forms. So from there, you still have to go to context. So rather than saying, well, it could be one of these three on the eight case, you say, oh, this is dative. And we have to find out whether it's dative and dealing with location or dative dealing with instrumentality. That's the explanation of the, the, the debate. Um, again, it was designed to make things a little more easy to teach academically because you have students learning case or endings rather than functions. Um, but I believe it's personally detrimental to Koine Greek and creates confusion surrounding its authenticity, credibility, and specificity. Um, I would say that it's imperative to identify the proper case under an eight case system when a word is identified grammatically under the five case system. So if someone's using a five case system, I expand it and say, well, you say that's dative, it's gotta be dative locative or instrumental, and then identify contextually which one it is and say, no, that's not dative, that's locative, or that's not dative, that's instrumental. So I expand it from a five to the eight. That's just free of charge. More information than you ever wanted to know, I'm sure. Logo possesses the dative or locative or instrumental case ending and is either, either dative, locative, or instrumental in function. So they all the same case ending, but the function is different. While the predominant emphasized function is one of the three, the remaining two functions play roles as well, albeit less prominent roles. Context is the determining factor when identifying which of the cases is the predominant case over the other two. This incorporates word definitions, syntactical relationships, as well as grammatical rules of the language. In verse 18, James uses logo in the instrumental case, identifying logo as the instrument which is used to affect the direct object, the diaspora. It is the revealed word which is the instrument God used to give birth to the diaspora. This is translated through the addition of English phrases such as by means of or through, or through the instrumentality of, or through the means of, or a number of different uh, variables that create this understanding of it's through or that the word is the instrument used. While the instrumentality is the most prominent of the three case functions, the notion of the pure dative, or just the dative, and the locative is also employed. This is similar to a singing group which possesses a main vocalist and two other backup or background singers. All three are on the stage, but one has the main role in the show. So in other words, we're looking at all three have a function. The word expresses all three cases. One's more dominant, and so it gets the label of instrumental. Lago is instrumental because of its usage syntactically here. Why is it not neuter for an aspect? Is because the of the instrumental from God? Because it's it, the the neuter doesn't have to the case and the and the neuter form don't have to mix together or don't have to relate. So and his point is that the neuter is an instrument or a tool identifies an instrument or tool rather than an initiator or responder. And in um, the text, lago is actually masculine, identifying it as being based on initiation. It was put out there under the initiation of someone, something, someone started it, initiated it. So he's asking why isn't lago in the neuter form, which would identify it as a uh, tool or an instrument used to accomplish something. Um, partly because the, the instrumental case does that through it, and it's keeping the function as the initiator involved there. So you don't need harmony, and, and case doesn't require harmony with the gender. You can look at any Greek grammar, and they, none of them speak to it at all. Um, so, so while you may think it would be there, and I would think to look for it because of the harmony of it, it's more syntactical function versus uh, definition of the word, if you will. It's more syntactical than morphological. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. It's a good. It's a good question because I mean I evaluated it too when I looked at it because I was like, well, why isn't that uh, instrumental in nature? But what it what we're getting at here too, and th this correlates down the road. Um, we'll give you the little verses. Uh, in the beginning was the word, and the word was yada yada. You go through the rest of the verse. Word there is mask, and we'll deal with a little bit of that too. So I think there's a better reason than that. Uh, we'll get to that at the end. But but the the gender of the word and the case of the word don't have to have the same harmony because there's really no masculine harmony for the case um, so that's really not a reason for it it's just that's an example there's no masculine or feminine correlation to the case either so case and gender don't have to harmonize in that good question though it's an annoying question too not annoying that you asked it but it's annoying to to try and 
absolve that personally before you get to the point, but I'm glad you asked it because I prepared myself for it. Yeah, I I would if you have it or a link to it or something. I'd love to hear it because. Yeah, I, I'm wanting to do one of my own too because there's a lot from creation all the way throughout. Every I mean all of it. But. In fact, I cut out a bunch of slides pertaining to that kind of thing, but that's not tonight's study. Maybe a side study next week. Just kidding. Okay. In the case of Lago, James places a more prominent emphasis on the revealed word being the instrument through which the diaspora was given birth. However, it is also with the receiving of the word, the dative, and within the location of the revealed word or message that their having been given birth occurred. Okay, in other words, the dative deals with receiving things. So it, if the dative case is used, the, the direct object is receiving the indirect object. You're giving it to them. It's recipient kind of thing. Um, when the locative is used, you're dealing with that it's in truth or in the word of truth that they were given birth to. So we've got all three again on the stage. The more dominant one being emphasized here uh, or more prominent one being emphasized here is the instrumentality of it, that it was through the word of truth that they were given birth to, but through them receiving it also. So you've got the dative concept in there in the reception. And then through the location of the word of truth, it's within the boundaries or the sphere of the word of truth that they received or were given spiritual birth. So outside of that, spiritual birth does not occur, is what it's identifying. It's through the instrumentality of the revealed word, through the diaspora receiving the revealed word, and through the location within the revealed word that they were given birth to by God. Each of the three plays a role in the expression by James. However, the instrumentality of the revealed word is the more prominent. Does that make sense? Good enough? Okay. At this point, it should be highlighted that there is no definite article in the original text as the English has. The definite article of the in Koine Greek as well as in English functions in the capacity of declaring specificity regarding a specific noun or substantive. The lack of the definite article in Koine Greek expresses an emphasis on the qualities and attributes which make up the anarthrous noun. Anarthrous is the Greek grammar term for not possessing a definite article. Anarthrous. So, definite article is not there. We don't have ho logo. We have logo, alathias. So, it's not the revealed word of truth. It's revealed word of truth. Since logo does not possess a corresponding definite article, it is by definition lacking an article, and therefore an arthrus. In using logo without the definite article, James places an emphasis on the characteristics and attributes of logo rather than attempting to specify a specific logo or logos. So instead of a specific message, this message or the message of truth, the message pertaining to truth, he's saying a message of truth, if you will. It's an indefinite, non-specified. The focus with Koine Greek when the definite article doesn't, it isn't with the noun or substantive, is on place. It places emphasis on the attributes of logo on word. So we're going to deal with the attributes um, with Alathias being a descriptor of it as well. But it's God giving so birth. So article would be more likely used with Rama in the specific word of God as not identifying it, as far as trying to remember yeah, what that it, is versus lack of it with Rada. Uh, yeah, usually when you have Rama, you're going to have the definite article, but not always. And you can have the definite article, article with Logos. It's just not in this passage. It's not there. Okay. So in this by passage, that. what's that? You're being defined by... Lago is being defined truth. and described by truth. Truth yeah. is what makes it that specific message. It doesn't need to have a definite article because there would only be one message of truth. Right. In essence, it's like saying by a word of truth, a true word, a true message, rather than the message of truth, yada, yada, and that specific message. So it's dealing with the attributes or characteristics of the message rather than the actual teaching of a specific message. Make sense? It's kind of, well, we should deal with it and get there a little bit. It gets kind of confusing because in English you have to put the in front of it when you're dealing with it in a as an object. So it's, it gets kind of confusing, but 
I don't know which one we're on. Okay, this being the case, because logo is in Arthras, the reference made by logo is incomplete without understanding its noun partner in the construct alathias. Alathias is not an adjective, it is a noun. This is something Greek does, it's kind of special and, and fun. So regardless, James is not identifying a specific message, but rather a type of message which is described by the genitive noun alathias. So it's a noun acting almost like an adjective, but only because of its genitive case. Alathias is translated into English as truth. It relates to that which is in agreement with an unbiased, unhidden, and thus unhindered reality. The etymology of the word actually stems from the understanding that it is something which is non-concealed. Something that is completely open and visible for what it is. In other words, it is what it is. It's not hidden, it doesn't look like it, it's not represented by something else. It's completely non-concealed in its identity. Now, that's where it comes from. As such, being unhindered reality or unbiased um, and unhidden, alathias refers to that which is seen to be as what actually exists being, having not been clouded or cloaked by any disguising factor, seeing something for what it actually is. Being in the genitive case, James identifies that alathias is the possession of something else. Genitive case is used to describe or identify possession, um, the crown of the king. Who does the crown, crown belong to? It belongs to the king, therefore it's of the king. You know, king's crown identifies possession in English too. It's a similar concept. So the something else that the genitive case is referring to here with alathias is lago. Therefore, lago is the possessor of alathias, dictating the understanding that the, the truth is of the word, or of word. So it's a word of truth. This being the case, alathias describes the type of lago which was revealed it is literally revealed word in possession of and defined as being truth. James is identifying that it is by a message of truth which God gave birth to the, to the diaspora. That is the type of message, a truthful message, one which is defined by and possesses truth. It's not cloaked, it's not hindered. It's a message of truth, nothing hidden, which is the instrument God used to give birth to, to the diaspora. James's focus is not on a specific message, such as the gospel message of love, sin, separation, redemption, repentance, and justification. While each of these are also defined by truth and are truths, James's emphasis is that it was through a message which was and is true that the diaspora was given spiritual birth. The content of the message is not in view, but its type as being a message in possession of truth is. So focus again is not on what, which message it was or what the message said, it's on the type of message. It was one that possessed truth. We'll beat that horse a little more. And so James teaches that the principle which led to the diaspora's spiritual birth is a revealed word or message of truth, a message which is not disguised or hidden or cloaked, but is completely visible for what it truly exists being. The message of truth was the instrument God used to accomplish his thoughtfully considered plan to give birth to the diaspora. However, it is not merely the giving of a message of truth which caused the diaspora's spiritual birth. There was more to the plan of God which is outlined clearly in Scripture, and that clearly requires that a person places personal dependency upon the message of truth prior to spiritual birth. That's part of the plan. The diaspora placed their dependency upon the truth, which was revealed through the thoughtfully considered plan of God, as a result, and in accordance, as a result, and in accordance with the plan of God, they were spiritually born. So it was the message of truth that they received the truth, they in that truth accepted it, and through that truth, that was what gave them their rebirth. They accepted it, mixed it with faith. And that truth, that message of truth is what gave them their rebirth. So the expanded translation of verse 18 as studied up to this point is as follows. Having already been acted upon to thoughtfully consider a plan and carry it out through volition, he gave birth to us through revealed word in possession of and defined by truth. Having already been acted upon to thoughtfully consider a plan and carry it out through volition, he gave birth to us through revealed word in possession of and defined by truth. And if that's a little more difficult to understand, throw a the in the part that says give birth to gave birth to us through the revealed word in possession of and defined by truth. It changes it, but it may help with the understanding. Just make sure you're focusing on the type of message, the one being truth, truth, not on a specific message. The volume principles of cosmos theos are thus established by James in these first two parts of verse 18. Number one. God gives spiritual birth to humanity through a word of truth. 
is reality. It is what it is. It's not hidden. It's nothing else we haven't seen. It is this is the truth. What are you going to do with it? Number two, this word of truth is received by those who upon hearing receive it in faith. Number three, it is within the scope of this word of truth that spiritual birth occurs. Outside of this revealed message defined by and in possession of truth, spiritual birth does not and cannot occur. God's plan, number four, was thoughtfully considered and volitionally carried out through Jesus' life, death, and resurrected life was to provide spiritual birth to humanity through a message of truth. This was the plan. As such, this message of truth is the only way which is prescribed for accomplishing spiritual birth in humanity. This message of truth must be mixed with faith in order for spiritual birth to occur in, an, in any individual the diaspora are identified as having done this. And they're being reminded at this point in James 1.18, uh, as they deal with the different testation processes that they're facing, that it was God who brought them forth and gave birth to them through his message of truth, and therefore they should remain sticking to message of truth rather than that which is hindered and hidden. Number five, reception of this word of truth by personal dependency, a.k.a. faith, is the sole source and cause for spiritual birth within any individual. Since spiritual birth is the requirement for spiritual life, number six, rejection of this word of truth leads to the soul's eternal judgment in the lake of fire. That's our study for tonight. Let me add in here real quickly before we wrap this up is that we mentioned that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. Um, and this is probably because of the question about the neuter also. So this should help answer some of that as well with logo or logos. Now, logos in its root form is a masculine noun, meaning it's based on initiation or it is an initiator. It depends on if it's a being or a person as to whether it is the initiator or whether it's a thing or um, an object as to whether it's based on initiation. Um, so in John 1, 1 and through verse 5, that passage um, which says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and, and the Word was God, and it, uh, He was with God in the beginning. Verse 1 and 2, I believe. Uh, in that passage, Jesus, the God the Son, is clearly the Word. You have God the Son being given credit for the revelation of God's command, God the Father's command. So in creation, God the Father said, let there be light. The understand then is therefore that God the Son created the light and revealed God's word. And in that sense, he is known as the revealed word himself, um, that he is the one that reveals God's word. Jesus being on earth is the revealed word of God. The word message of God is that there would be a Messiah in his life on earth. He became that revealed word while he walked amongst humanity. So this message of truth that is out there, while we're not focusing, while James is focusing specifically on the actual message uh, that was truthful, um, and again, he's talking specifically about a message which had truth and which was in possession of truth. That message of truth we would attribute to Jesus' life, death, and resurrected life once again. The testimony that Christ gave about the God that existed, the salvation that was required, and the purpose of, and role of humanity in a relationship with God. All of that which had been revealed through Scripture in the message, but had been lived out in the life of Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus is always going to be masculine. God the Son will always be masculine um, as an initiator. So that's part of the correlation there, in my opinion. I don't know that you can probably say that dogmatically, but I would say that's probably part of it. And I think if we get a chance to study a little more in-depthly, we may see that the message of truth is inextricably linked to the, the, the word of truth, Logos, uh, as a de definite reference to Jesus Christ. I didn't want to go that route tonight because I didn't want to confuse us as we try to keep the context of what was being said, that it was by a message of truth not by the message of Jesus Christ, but by a message of truth, which had no hidden meaning or hidden anything, but just reality being expressed for what it was, that the diaspora was brought to their, the, their spiritual birth. Any questions on that part? Robin. Uh, in English, the lack of a capital W. You don't really. I would say that, that 118 is clearly not talking about Jesus specifically um, because it probably would have had the definite article to identify that specificity. And again, the focus isn't on it being Jesus or the message of Jesus. It's not talking about a specific message. It's talking about a type of message there, a message which is in possession of truth, a truthful type of message. Yeah, but the article is written by John 1. Yes. So, so, so we're, 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 so we
It's in all three places, and word there is always log off. Well, from log off. <laughs> I looked at that verse and I had it in our slides tonight. Um, and I believe it's there. Uh, can you look, pull it up? John 14, 6. Jesus answered and said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I'm, I believe from previous study that it's there. But I don't remember, so I want to make sure it's there. My, my engineer's over there too, so. That verse was in here as part of the whole concept that Jesus is the message of truth. He came to testify truth. He is the living word of God. Um, he is the way, the truth, the life. And if this, and that verse kind of sums up our whole study tonight, is that the message of truth, as we apply it, if Jesus is the revealed word, then the message of truth is the way, the truth, the unhindered reality about what it actually is, about who God is and who man is and man's need, and then the life following from all those three things. So the parallel is clearly there, um, but the focus of James's passage in 118 is not on Jesus or his message. It's on it being a message of truth, which we refer to and link to as being what Jesus did on earth. And the Father specifically. And what? And the Father is definitely there too. Right. So definitely used in that verse all the way around. So no one can come to the Father except through me. So it's a good question. It's amazing how much the definite article changes things. So in fact, I had to go through and erase a few slides, about like 20 of them, because I'd already analyzed and identified it, and I forgot to check on the definite article there. So I'd put a definite article in there, and I was identifying the specific message of Jesus and went through the revealed word and all the stuff we just talked about I had slides for. So that wasn't the focus of what James was saying, but it is the truth, the reality behind it. The message of truth, which was unhindered, was that <clears throat> man was created by God to glorify God. Man fell. Man was in need of a savior. Christ came to, or Jesus came to live the life that man was supposed to live, being in a complete obedience, um, operating from the control of the Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit and saturated to the point of his control, living a sinless life, obedient to God. And then the testimony that he provided through that was that we can be restored to that relationship and operate under the proper model of humanity through faith in his message, which is the message of truth, the one which James re refers to. It all works together. Which we like to see. That is the truth, but he's, he's not being specific in James. Right, he's not saying through this message. Exactly. He's saying through a through. It was through, truth. and we got to put that word a in there. There's no a in right. Greek language. There's, there's no indefinite article. So anywhere you see in English the word a, it's not there. It doesn't even exist in Greek. No. But it's put in there to help kind of assist where the lack of a definite article occurs. So depending on the translation and whether it's pass it or word for word or word for meaning or meaning for meaning. But just depends. You know, the different articles not there, so it tells you right then. Right. For the most part, everything. Like in the Jehovah's Witness Bible, yeah. they put a God. Yeah, in, in John 1 1, in the New World Translation, they put, in the beginning was. I forget. The word, the word was the word, and the word was a God. And they actually put it there as something that exists. Well, it doesn't exist in the original language. There's no word for A. So they use it to say that Jesus was a man who became a, a god. So there's more than one god. Well, that's not possible if you look at the Greek language. And that's the, the promulgation is that we become gods when we enter heaven for them. What's that? They do, in that same respect. Yeah. Any other questions on tonight's study?